Good morning. Um, so this is the third talk in our series on the Holy Spirit, the Spirit-filled life. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mike was looking at Ezekiel and the uh, story of the uh, dry bones, uh, asking, do we need the Spirit? And then Richard last week looked at uh, who is the Spirit, uh, pointing out the role of the Spirit as a comforter, uh, as an advocate, as a counsellor, um, the bringer of truth. Two great talks. Oh, well. Um, now, this week we're going to look at the, the Holy Spirit, um, who can be filled and how. And my prayer is that, that at the end of this, uh, this talk, your answer to the question is everyone, and they just need to ask. But more importantly, on an individual level, I want you to be thinking, I can be filled, and I'm going to ask right now. We spoke, a, a, uh, we sang just a minute ago about your breath in our lungs. Um, do you ever think about your breath? Do you know each day we take about 23,000 breaths? That's 11,000 litres of, uh, of air. And uh, with everything that's going on in our lives, we never really think about our uh, breathing. Breath brings the oxygen that we need, and it gets rid of the carbon dioxide uh, that would kill us if we didn't get rid of it. If breath is no more, then we're no more. So each breath is uh, an unseen grace, bearing the, the unseen power of uh, visible life. So it's no wonder that in the Bible the main image that is used for the Spirit of God uh, is that of breath, or wind as well. Now, wind is important to me. Um, in both my work life and leisure time, it features significantly. Now, not because I'm a man of a certain age. Um, but, but at work, I'm responsible for um, connecting renewable energy to uh, the electricity grid. And, uh, and when I'm relaxing, I enjoy sailing and, uh, and racing yachts. Now, wind figures pretty strongly in both of those. And uh, I never think of the wind as being still. I imagine um, every image the word creates talks about movement. It talks about activity, motion, effect. And verbs are normally uh, action words, but nouns like the wind uh, are, are action, action nouns, if you like. We know the wind is there, it chills us, it blows against us. We see the wind's effect on the turbines that are generating energy or the, uh, the yachts that I sail. We don't see it, but we, we feel its direct action uh, as we lean against it or move with its help. And the spirit is an action noun as well. The spirit acts, moves, agitates, uh, and energizes life itself, our lives. And in this series, we've looked at the fact that every Christian has uh, the Holy Spirit living within them. And yet Paul writes to Christians in, uh, in Ephesians, and he says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word there is in the present continuous tense. It means go on being filled in the Spirit again and again and again. So if you're here this morning and, and you're not yet a Christian, then we want, you to, or we want to introduce you to the Holy Spirit as part of that relationship with Jesus. And if you are a Christian, then we want you to experience an even deeper sense of the Holy Spirit, full immersion. There's something for everyone this morning. When uh, Christ ascends to, uh, uh, to heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit in his place. On three separate occasions, at the Last Supper and twice after he'd risen, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit. 
And it takes him no more than a few days uh, on Pentecost to keep his promise. And we often think of the Holy Spirit as being um, a gift first given to the church at Pentecost. But we've already seen in this series that uh, the Holy Spirit has been seen before that, most evidently in the life of Christ. And we're going to look at a couple of examples shortly. It was said of Jesus that he had the Spirit without measure. But we can go back further. As we've seen in this series, the Holy Spirit is right there at the outset of the world, moving on the face of the waters. And throughout the whole Old Testament, the prophets are prophesying from the Spirit, including Joel. Another point, which is, is a missional outreach um, that uh, some of us involved in, we'd like to take time out to explain something about the, uh, the characters uh, in the Bible. We don't assume any understanding of, uh, of the Bible. Uh, so rather than simply saying, the Bible says, we'll say something like, um, it, say, you know, it says in the book of, um, or we'll say, James who we think was probably a half-brother of Jesus, writes. So we try and make it real, talk about their relationships and their context. So with Joel, this is how we'd introduce Joel on, in the point. We'd say, Joel, we know absolutely nothing. <laughs> we, he's mentioned once in the Bible, in his own book. Uh, he's the son of Pethuel. No, we don't know who he was either. We don't even know when exactly he wrote his, uh, his book. But he does feature in Michelangelo's fresco at the uh, Sistine Chapel. But we do know that his name means one to whom Jehovah is God. And he clearly prophesied from the Holy Spirit and about the Holy Spirit. The main thing of his book is the day of the Lord. It talks about repentance and, and the Lord in their midst. And all of these themes converge uh, in the promise of a future outpouring of the Spirit. I will pour out my Spirit on all people. And Joel was spot on. On the day of Pentecost, uh, when the Holy Spirit arrives in force like a violent wind, Peter addresses the bewildered crowd and he quotes Joel explaining that this is the work of the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit. Didn't need any elaborate explanation. Uh, a theology of the Holy Spirit was the furthest thing from their mind. They had their hands wonderfully full with the Spirit's presence uh, and activity in their lives. And, and he, seeing every believer experience this activity. And from that moment on, the Holy Spirit would be giving people mini Pentecosts, filling them and showing them what to, uh, to do with it. Now, many of my family are from South Wales. Uh, my mother, <laughs> my mother is, is here and uh, is, she's Welsh. Uh, my wife is Welsh, and psychologists would probably have uh, a bit of uh, something deeply troubling about that. Um, but as a child, I spent quite a bit of my time in Wales uh, during the holiday periods, and I'd regularly go to church with uh, my family. I was a Pentecostal church in a, a tin hut on the side of a, a mountain in uh, Carmarthen. And, uh, and there, many of the older members uh, would wistfully talk of the Welsh revival, a time when there was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, in the first decade of the 1900s, a mini-Pentecost. And some of these guys had been there and they'd lived through it. Some of them had been saved during that, that period. And uh, colliers, doctors, uh, dock workers, teachers, people from all walks of life being healed or speaking in tongues on the bus, uh, on, in work, on the pubs, in the streets. 
Um, and as I grew up, I realised that these weren't just uh, exaggerations. Um, these clippings are from a national newspaper in 1904, and they talk about a remarkable manifestation of uh, spiritual enthusiasm, huge meetings that go on until 4.30 in the morning, outbursts of testimony and song, God pouring out his spirit on all people, irrespective of gender, age, and social class. I love that you probably can't see uh, in these clippings, but I love that it says, the revival cannot be lightly accounted for by the emotional character of the Welsh people. <laughs> and uh, it also goes on to say that when the English have visited, it has sometimes dampened the ardour of the meetings. <laughs> And when it does spread to England, it says the ecstasy may not be the same among a less emotional folk. So there you are. Um, and often that's our problem with the, the, the Holy Spirit. It's just, particularly in the Anglican Church, it's just a bit too, well, you know, lively. Um, a bit too emotional. We settle into the ways of, uh, of doing things and we become comfortable. It's okay for certain churches or a, or a soul survivor, but not, not really for the Anglican church, um, not really for the middle classes. Uh, we become stuck in the past and we need the Holy Spirit to disrupt our complacency. And I realise that some people that say all Christians are stuck in the past because we base our beliefs on a book that was written thousands of years ago. But it was written by people exploring faith and experiencing uh, faith just like us, and we can learn from them. And one person I love learning from is Peter. Um, Peter in particular, I, I identify with the fact that uh, he has a face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus. He's the rock on which Christ is going to build his church. And yet he messes up all the time, continuously. And uh, I love that. I, tr you know, I go to Peter for, for reassurance when I can't quite match up to Paul. And uh, if we... If we look at this, uh, this passage that was read, even after the day of Pentecost, Peter was still stuck in the past. Uh, and we need to understand a little bit about the, the context of this second scripture. A couple of days before this, Peter's praying on the roof of his house at lunchtime, and he falls into a trance, like you do. And, uh, and it isn't an ordinary household trance. In this trance, Peter sees uh, heaven open up and a sheet come down to earth. And... Uh, on the sheet are all kinds of animals. And Peter hears a voice telling him to get up, kill and eat. And Peter protests saying, I'm never eating anything impure. To which the voice responds, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happens three times. The sheet is lifted up from where it came. And Peter's left just sitting there trying to make sense of uh, what's happened. Just a bit more about Peter. He was raised in a fishing village called Capernaum, and his people were deeply committed to keeping the Jewish law, which included the parts about avoiding impurity. They understood God to be holy and pure, and they organized themselves around reflecting this purity, and that included food and also people. In the same way that you wouldn't touch a dead animal, they wouldn't touch someone who was considered unclean. And their commitment to clean, this cleanliness was so extensive that uh, they wouldn't even go into the house of someone they considered unclean, which meant anybody that wasn't Jewish, which meant basically everyone else. Now back to Peter's trance. Uh, as soon as his trance is over, there's a knock at the door, and it's some Romans, the ultimate in unclean, and they're asking him if they'll go to his, uh, their leader's house. And he agrees to go, go with them, but even when he gets there, he hesitates, um, because um, 
This is an unclean house. But God has shown him that he should not call anyone impure or unclean. And how has God shown him that? By his disruption of the Holy Spirit that Richard spoke about last week. See, Peter had a framework. He had a model, a way of understanding the world, a way of understanding who God was and what it meant to follow him. And central to that understanding was the conviction that some people are clean and some people are unclean. You can go to some people's houses, but you can't go to other people's houses. And then he has this experience that just doesn't fit with that framework. And as a result of that, the Holy Spirit disrupts his life and he ends up at the house of uh, Cornelius. And we see this great outpouring of the Spirit on the household. Peter grasps the truth of the Holy Spirit at last. He realises that the Holy Spirit has no boundaries, that the Holy Spirit's for everyone. Which kind of makes you wonder what he was doing all the time when he was with Jesus. Because if we look at Jesus' life, Jesus' whole life is around is an ultimate example of being spirit-filled. In his birth, his conception, baptism, ministry, miracles, preaching, even being tempted in the desert. And when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he makes absolutely clear that it's for everyone around him, in what he says, but also in what he does and the way that he relates to people. How on earth did Peter miss this? I just want to look at two examples briefly in, uh, in John 3 and 4. And they're for either end of the social spectrum in Jesus' world, where he shares the truth of the Holy Spirit. The first one's uh, Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, the elite, respected by all, learned in the scripture, and he comes tonight questioning Jesus, trying to find out uh, about his, him as the Messiah. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher and you don't know these things. You need to be born again of water and of spirit. The outward washing must be accompanied by an inward dwelling of the spirit. And again, Jesus uses this analogy of the wind, that the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone of the spirit. Jesus says you cannot see the Holy Spirit, but you can see the impact in people's lives. And then at the other end of the social ladder, um, from a Jewish perspective, was the woman that Jesus met at the, uh, the well. A woman, a Samaritan, a divorcee living with a man that wasn't her husband, socially, ethically, and theologically abhorrent to Jews at that time. And yet Jesus' conversation with this woman is all about the Holy Spirit. She doesn't need a lecture, she needs living water. He says to her, all who drink this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. He comes to quench our uh, thirst for acceptance, for relationship, for meaning. And in that we become a source for others. Just think about how the Holy Spirit works in this woman. This woman had no theological training or even understanding of Christian doctrine. She was not even totally convinced about Jesus herself. So when she returns to her people, she doesn't say, Jesus is the Christ. Rather, she's reached the position of saying, could this be the Christ? And yet, she's powerfully used in evangelism. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Jesus had changed her life. The waters of life were pouring out of her, just as Jesus has promised. You see, these Holy Spirit disruptions, they're catalysts for our spiritual growth. They're rather, often incredibly exciting and liberating, but they can also shake us like the carpet's being yanked out from under us. For the stable ground that we've been on for so long is starting to shake. And yet you can't go back. As you grow and you change and you see and you taste new things, 
um, once you taste it, you can't pretend like you haven't. It's gripping. Imagine Peter walking through the doorway of that Roman's house for the first time. Everything in his upbringing told him that he'd be jeopardising his standing with God to do that. And yet now, he's seen something new. And once you see, you can't unsee. It might be that you're, you're sitting there and I'm thinking, well, actually, I'm not really sure about Jesus, let alone this Holy Spirit character. And my hope is that the stories of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman and Peter himself encourage you to explore what the Holy Spirit can mean for your life. Maybe you've been a Christian for years and you just don't do all that charismatic stuff. Yours is a very private faith, but you start to wonder if there's more. Wherever you're coming from, don't deny those Holy Spirit disruptions. If we go back to uh, Acts chapter 10, it wasn't just Peter that was in uh, new territory. Uh, Cornelius and his household experienced a Holy Spirit disruption as well. Uh, first of all, they experienced the love of God through the, the power of the Holy Spirit because the supreme work of the Spirit is to pour God's love into our hearts, to give an experience of God's love for us. Romans 5 verse 5 says, The love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And we all need to experience and to know that love that Paul says surpasses knowledge. That's to say, you can't simply intellectually understand it. You have to experience it. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He gives us that experience of God's love for us. Cornelius and his household experienced the love of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, they expressed their love for God. Spontaneous praise is the, is the language of those that are excited. They're thrilled about their relationship with God. And this kind of response should involve all of our being, not just our minds, but our, our hearts and uh, our body and our emotions. We hesitate some time about uh, emotions, but if you love someone, we express those, uh, that with emotion. And then finally, they received a new love language. They heard them speaking in tongues. Now, if you're unsure about tongues, we can describe tongues as simply a form of prayer. It's a form of prayer which transcends the language limitation. Now, sometimes I'm trying to communicate something to somebody, and I just think, I haven't got the words to uh, express what I'm trying to say. I've experienced some of that this, this week. We're all limited by language. And uh, we think something, we want to say it, and we have to put it into a language so the other person can understand it. And, uh, but not with God. God can give us another way, which is to free us from the limitations of uh, human language. And we'll be thinking about that in a couple of weeks as, as part of this, uh, this study. Now, if you struggle with everything that I've uh, said about the Holy Spirit and how it works for you, then you are absolutely not alone. The early church struggled with different shades of, uh, of belief about the Holy Spirit, um, but most of them didn't seek or want a definition. They were simply happy to experience it firsthand. They stuck with what matters most, which is what the Spirit is doing with us here in this time and place. You know, when I, I tell my daughter Emily she was at the, the first service to go and tidy her room, which even now is often at the age of 23, um, she knows exactly what I want. She won't come back to me a couple of hours later and say, well, you know what you asked me to do earlier? I've memorized it. I can recite it and I can uh, say it word for word. You said, go and tidy your room. 
Am I going to say, oh, that's a good job, that's just what I wanted? No. And she's not going to say to me, well, you know that phrase you used earlier? Well, I looked up the Greek for it. And I can say, go and tidy your room in Greek. That's not going to impress me. And finally, she's not going to say, well, Dad, you know what? My friends and I are going to get together every week and we're going to sit down and study and figure out what it would look like if I tidied my room. No, what I want is for her to immerse herself in actually tidying her room. You see, understanding the Holy Spirit isn't just hearing what it says in the Bible, uh, memorizing it, talking about it, and discussing it. It's about experiencing it for ourselves. Allowing the Holy Spirit to work so the impact's seen in your entire life. Thinking about the Spirit is actually secondary, at least next to actually living in the Spirit. The Spirit's here so we may live the kingdom. That means it's not confined to church. Sunday shouldn't be just a Holy Spirit drive-through where you get topped up to cope with uh, the week. Um, the Holy Spirit's with you in your home, in your neighbourhood, in your communities, in your workplace. All of us can be filled everywhere if we just ask. So why don't we? In uh, Luke uh, chapter 11, um, it talks about the three main reasons why people don't ask for uh, more of the Holy Spirit. The first is uh, doubt. If I asked, will I receive? Jesus says to the followers in Luke, ask and it will be given to you. And you can just imagine the disciples are thinking, oh, I'm not sure. So Jesus says a second time, seek and you will find. And they're still not convinced. So he goes on, knock and the door will be opened to you. And you can imagine they're thinking, I'm still not sure. Maybe other people if they ask, but not me. So Jesus goes on, for everyone who asks, receives. Everyone includes you. Just as he included the Gentile, the Pharisee, the Samaritan woman, every race, every gender, every social class. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Second reason we don't ask sometimes is fear. You can see the disciples saying, oh wait, I'm, I'm convinced then. If I ask, I receive. But do I want to receive? What if something terrible happens to me? And so Jesus says, look, some of you uh, are fathers. Supposing your son comes to you and it's lunchtime, and you say to your son, what would you like for lunch? And your son says, oh, I'd love some fish and chips. And he doesn't mention chips, just in case you're going to write in, but I added that for effect. Um, and you say, great, well, there's a good fish and chip shop nearby. I'll just pop and get you some. Instead of popping down to the fish and chip shop, you go to the pet shop and you pick up a snake and you go back and you say, well, you know you said you wanted fish and chips. There you go. And you give them a snake. Jesus says that just doesn't happen. So if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's not going to give you something terrible. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. And then the final barrier is inadequacy. If you're anything like me, I often used to feel, well, I'm, I'm not worthy because other people don't know what I'm really like. I think, well, if I asked, I'm not going to receive it because God knows what I'm like and he knows I don't deserve it. And I can understand why holy people, why, why vicars like Mike and uh, people who have been Christians for uh, a long time uh, get the Holy Spirit, but I don't think he's going to give it to me. But what Jesus says is not, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to really holy people who've been Christians for a very long time? He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who simply ask him? So Jesus says, be direct. 
Ask for what you need. Are you enjoying everything that Jesus has made possible for you? Or are you still feeling guilty or powerless? If you're not a Christian, then Jesus is a sin remover. As you come to Jesus, he takes away your sin and offers you his Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I have come so that you may have life. But he also goes on to say he wants you to have abundant life. So if you're a Christian, then Jesus is a spirit baptizer. Jesus can absolutely fill you with his Holy Spirit, transforming your life dynamically. And that's what Jesus has made possible for you. Jesus came to bring forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit, new and abundant life to all of us, to anybody that asks in faith. So should we ask him? Let's pray.